Scrum framework aims to remove impediments to product development and delivery. Unfortunately, some teams manage to make more of a mess than they started with. Sometimes a power dynamic can emerge where the product owner and the development team butt heads, or perhaps the scrum master has to wear too many hats and takes on a different role entirely. And that's really unfortunate because when scrum works the way it's supposed to, it can deliver measurable change. To get there, it takes a dedication to Scrum's core values, which are focus, commitment, respect, and openness. And as you'll learn, it helps when you have a Scrum master who can show their team just how much they love them. I'm David Carty, Site Editor of Search Software Quality. And I'm Ryan Black, Assistant Site Editor of Search Software Quality. And this is the Test and Release Podcast, where we speak with experts about software development and testing topics. In this episode, we speak with Ryan Ripley, He's a professional scrum master, product owner, and agile coach. Ripley is the author of the book, Fixing Your Scrum, Practical Solutions to Common Scrum Problems. Ripley started out as a project manager, but scrum changed the way he thought about working with teams. Each role in the scrum framework serves a specific function. The product owner determines the what and the why, the development team figures out the how, and the scrum master facilitates scrum itself. Ripley explains why everyone in this workflow should feel like they are there to collaborate not negotiate. Ripley also describes some common anti-patterns in Scrum, where, how, and when teams fall short. As a Scrum trainer for Fortune 500 companies, he runs into these challenges all the time, and he offers advice on how Scrum teams can revamp their processes and culture. Here's our talk with Ryan Ripley. So I'll get things started here. Uh, First thing I wanted to ask you, Ryan, is uh, for you to maybe quickly just run through what you consider to be the core Scrum values and where you think there might be some confusion around those values, like generally where people tend to be the most confused from what you've seen. Yeah, so the the core Scrum values, and I I love that you're starting here um, because I think these are (laughs) misunderstood and some of the most important pieces of the framework. you know, the, the, score, the, the core Scrum values are, are focus, openness, uh, commitment, courage, and respect. And so focus meaning that people can actually focus on a, on a goal and not be distracted and they're given the opportunity to achieve it. Openness being you know, open to new ideas, open to experimentation, open to the fact that sometimes we're going to get it wrong, but also open that we ourselves are incorrect, right? So I think that's really hard on teams. Like when we say things, when we talk to people, when we're when working with others, we generally believe that the things we say that they're true, uh, but sometimes we're going to get proven wrong and being open to that. You know, commitment, such a misunderstood Scrum value. Commitment is typically thought of as a commitment to scope, but in Scrum, we, do, we never commit to scope. We commit to a sprint goal. We commit to one another to bring our best selves forward. We commit to being good stewards of the product owner's money. We commit to serving the customers in the best way that we know how with the minimal but sufficient solutions. So commitment is really a behavior, not not something about scope. Um, courage, it's really difficult to say no to people. But if we don't say no, we can't maintain focus. We can't keep our commitments to our goals. And so that courage really gives us the opportunity to, to maintain some of our other values. But it also preserves transparency, which is so important to Scrum, right? Scrum is built on empiricism. We have to have transparent work. And if we can't have the courage to say what's actually happening and going on, man, we lose that ability to, to bring empiricism to the forefront as a competitive advantage. And that, you know, that courage then is so essential. And then finally, we have um, respect, where that respect for, for one another, respect for each other, 
Um, everything else falls flat if we cannot respectfully um, conduct our work. And so those values, they're behavioral, right? And so we can do mechanical scrum. We can follow the framework and try to create a thousand steps to product delivery nirvana. But without those behaviors, we lose uh, a lot of the secret sauce for great teams. We lose the ability to collaborate and work together well. And I think a lot of teams and companies, they've left these values out. They're looking for that step one to a thousand without the behaviors that, that really support the, the practices. And they get this mechanical version of their old waterfall practices. They don't see true improvement. They're not competitive in the market. And it just leads to frustration uh, and almost resentful work. And it's really, it's why our book exists. You know, we wrote Fixing Your Scrum because we saw this so many times. You know, if you notice the book, the undercurrent, the undertone, the, the theme of that book is really bring the values forward and things get better. And, uh, and hopefully teams start doing that. Uh, amongst those four uh, behaviors and values you listed, what do you think teams or IT organizations fail to do the most often? You know, I think, you know, whether it's, you know, whether it's focus, openness, commitment, courage, courage, respect, you think about those in context. I find that focus is often um, completely lacking. You know, we, we assign teams to four different projects. We have a portfolio of a thousand things in flight right now. We have way too much whip. You know, we're not limiting our work in progress. We're, we're, we're amazingly good at, um, at starting things. We're not good at stopping things. I think focus really falls flat most of the time um, because we have to look busy. We have to look busy to seem successful. We have to look busy um, because that's what we're measuring instead of value and some other things. So I would say focus gets lost. You know, I was recently in the Midwest. Um, well, I live in the Midwest, so it's, that's not a shock, but I was working with a company in the Midwest. And I said, Ryan, we're having, a, we're having a lot of trouble with our portfolio. I said, cool. So let's, let's take a look at it. They had 150 projects in flight. 150 projects for a medium-sized company in the Midwest. That's a lot of stuff going on at once. So what do you want to invest in this year? And so most companies have rocks or boulders or big goals. And they had three or four of them. We put them on a wall. I said, that's cool. You've got four things you're trying to invest in. Let's map your whole portfolio to those four things. And almost immediately, they came to me and said, Ryan, this project doesn't map anywhere. I said, cool, put it over here in this other area. Out of 150 things that they were working on, that they were staying busy with, that they were, work, they were, they were trying to complete, about 50 of those things actually mapped to things that they wanted to invest in, to things that were important to the company. And about 100 projects were basically, let's keep people busy. And everyone was stunned. They're like, why are we doing these things? They're not, they're not hitting our bottom line. Some of it was keep the lights on kind of stuff. So we created a keep the lights on bucket and about 10 things floated over there. But the rest of that work was busy work. And they said, well, what do we do now? I'm like, let's enhance focus and cut those things. And people freaked. Like, well, what are these people going to work on that working on these other 90 projects? Said, so let's ask them how they can best contribute to the 50 things that are most important. And lo and behold, about two months later, I'm checking in and 10 projects finished. <laughs> They're like, Ryan, we've never finished 10 things in a quarter like this. I'm like, I know, isn't focus amazing? <laughs> but when we lose that focus, when we're not actually, you know, driving towards things that are important, if we're trying to max, you know, let's keep everyone 100% utilized or let's stay busy all the time, man, our companies and our organizations, the impediments build up and we, we're unable to get to done and it's pretty wild. So I would say for me, it's focused, but I'd imagine any other company you go to, you can find issues with openness, courage, commitment, respect. But yeah, for me, 
focus is the one that I, I usually see right away. That makes a lot of sense. I have to imagine that's probably like you go to any company, they're going to think of like, oh, yeah, we, we have a project that sounds like that. Um, I did want to ask you about something else, though. Um, uh, so in your view, what should be the power dynamic between the product owner, Scrum Master, and the development team? Of course, Scrum is a very roles-focused framework. Um, what checks and balances uh, do you think should be in place between those roles? So I think the framework actually puts the checks and balances in place beautifully already. And I think when we look at the roles and we figure out how they're supposed to be played and performed, um, these things kind of, they shine through pretty well. Um, let's think about the product owner first. So the product owner owns value, right? So they decide what we're going to work on. They set the, the product vision. You know, they, they collaborate with the dev team on what we're trying to build, right? So they really own the what and the why of our work. You know, why are we building this thing? What is it that, that it's going to do? You know, wh how is it going to best serve a customer? That value stream is really where they're at. Now the development team, they decide how best to do the work. So they get to decide what quality means. They get to decide, you know, how to do their work within some constraints, right? The organization has rights to set some boundaries there. You know, management's still needed to help set boundaries around that. But for the most part, the dev team is deciding how best to do the work. And so, there's a, but there's a balance there, right? Because that sounds like, you know, the dev team controls anything. Keep in mind, the product owner decides how to, when, or the, I'm sorry, the product owner decides if they're going to fund that team. Um, and so there's that balance there. It's kind of like, take it out of software for a minute. If someone showed up at your house to build a deck, right? If you've hired them to put a deck on the back of your house, one of these home improvement projects that we all love so much. Um, and they showed up and started to build a gazebo, are you going to pay that invoice? Mm -hmm. Absolutely not, right? right? And so it's the same kind of dynamic between a product owner and a dev team. So while we give a lot of control to the dev team, and make no mistake, Scrum is a developer play. Scrum is here to make developer lives better, right? So the devs are deciding what, what work to pull into a sprint. They're deciding to, to, on how to deliver the best quality. They're, they're making a ton of decisions about the work. The product owner is making a decision on whether or not to fund the next sprint. So there is that dynamic balance. As far as like the power dynamics, look, we, I, I wish we could throw all that language away. The dev team and the product owner have to be collaborative partners through the whole product development effort, right? These are, these are not opposing groups. These are, these are two roles who have to play beautifully together. They are, they are needed uh, to, they just have to get along, right? So it's not a power dynamic. It's a collaborative working agreement, a working relationship where the end goal is product. The scrum master doesn't own a lot. Like if I'm in a scrum master role, I'm there to, to make sure scrum is well understood and enacted. I'm there to make sure that um, there are changes going on within the organization that will make the life easier for my scrum team. I'm there to partner with the product owner and help best to um, become an agile product manager. Like I'm there to serve. And so that as far as any power dynamics with the scrum master, I mean, there's very few situations where I'm making direct decisions about anything, and it's usually related to Scrum. And so when you think about those three roles in action together, you'll see it's more of a collaborative relationship with some boundaries, right? Scrum Master owns Scrum, product owner has value, and they express value through a product backlog. And the dev team, dev team owns delivery and quality, and they express that through creating the increment. And so hopefully that, that long-winded answer helps, but... There's a, 
it's it's almost like a peaceful balance of power as long as people are staying within their boundaries that um it's more collaborative i would say like collaboration is the word i would put when i think about the the power dynamics between the roles i think trust is a big part of that equation right i mean i think that's something that a lot of organizations talk about trying to um engender trust and you know you talk about collaboration a little bit here and um, kind of, and also the boundaries. So it's, it's interesting. You have these boundaries, uh, you encourage uh, these different people to collaborate and understand each other. Um, and is that supposed to facilitate trust in a little bit more of a natural sort of way? Um, or, or is it just something you continuously work toward over time? You know, trust is a weird and misunderstood thing. I think when we, for some reason, we understand it in our personal lives, but at work, we, we totally lose sight of it. You know, trust is, is on a spectrum and trust is transactional. And I think understanding those two things, I think it was actually Esther Derby who taught that to me, where trust is on the spectrum, right? And so when I'm, um, when I'm, when I'm building trust with teams, I try to remind them that, look, there's some things that your business partners won't trust you with. There's some things they will, and we earn trust along that spectrum as we go. You know, to give you an example, you know, I've been married for 15 years to, to my great wife, and we trust each other with our, our secrets, our, our fears, our worries, our dreams, our aspirations. But my wife will not trust me with laundry, <laughs> right? I, I've wrecked too many sweaters over the years where she's like, please just don't touch it. Now, I've been accused of, having, of doing that on purpose. Um, but I, 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 I deny those allegations, but what I'm saying here is there are very, very important things that she trusts me with. There's other things that she doesn't. And so I think it's the same with people and teams and organizations. We need to realize that we're on a spectrum and we're earning our right up and down that spectrum, but trust is also transactional, right? We, we earn trust one, one transaction at a time, one deposit at a time. And unfortunately, um, it takes one bad moment to wipe out the whole account. Have you ever noticed that? It takes forever to build up trust, but it takes one bad moment and you wiped all of it out. Sure. And so, I mean, trust is interesting. So teams will say, all right, Ryan, that's a cool academic view of trust. What do you do? And my answer is, to, and I'm, I go back to the development team. We build trust by delivering valuable things that the product owner expected and that customers need. And that if we can do that over and over and over, the, the product owner starts to trust the dev team and then stakeholders start trusting the product owner. And then this flow, like the organization starts seeing profit and then they start trusting this whole scrum team as a unit to do smart things. And so I think we earn trust initially through delivery, but that really never ends. Right. And this takes that collaboration we just talked about by leveraging the scrum values and using the framework correctly to actually have the opportunity to deliver so that we build that trust incrementally over time. Does that make sense? Yeah, like it sounds like maybe like to take the laundry example you talked about before. It sounds like you like you know in an IT setting, like you could have like a QA professional who always does their work on time, is good at a great number of things, but like everyone knows they're terrible at security testing. So it's just like you you trust this person with a whole bunch of other stuff, but you just don't trust them to do like security testing, assuming they're they're bad at it. Like, well, and and so I think it starts there, but then let's. So as a scrum team, though, and if we leverage the scrum values, now we have the, our, a commitment to this person and some respect towards this person. Let's pair them up with someone who is good at that security testing. Let's level them up and give them a chance to show that, that they can actually do this. And 
So yeah, I totally agree with the, the example there, but then let's leverage the values and change that behavior and, and not leave distrust sitting in a team. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. So those values help elevate as we, you know, trust is a, is a fickle kind of weird thing, but the values help us cultivate that and build it and change it so that, you know, as a team, we're actually growing and changing and learning. And it's amazing how if you leave this stuff out, right? If you don't have the scrum values in place, if you don't worry about the trust dynamics, because that will impact transparency quite a bit. If you leave all that out and you just try to do scrum as a step-by-step framework, how much you lose from it. I mean, isn't that wild? Right, right. Um, to bring it back to Scrum Masters, you know, we hear the, the, top, the concept of being a servant leader associated a lot with Scrum Masters. Um, can you explain sure. some of the characteristics of a good servant leader in that type of role? You know, people ask a lot, you know, they, they get really caught up on the servant leader aspect of the role. And they say, well, Ryan, how would you know that someone should fill that role or that they could fill that role? And so I usually start with, I have three rules and we talk about this uh, in the book quite a bit, but it's really uh, three things. First of all, a person has to love their team. And that's such a weird word to use in tech, especially, but we mean it. Like it's that kind of care uh, for the people that they're, that they're serving, that kind of, like you want these people to just do amazing things and you, you have this drive, this passion to make sure that they have everything they need, right? The second thing is that you have to want these people to be wildly successful. So as a scrum master, nothing, I think one of the hardest aspects of this role is that nothing is about you. You are there to serve others. I'm there to get other people promoted. Like I want my product owner to be so wildly successful that they get promoted to new heights and new levels. They get new levels of influence. They get new levels of control over the product. I'm actually fighting to get another person promoted, right? I mean, it's, it's, I want these people to be wildly successful. And the third thing is I have to have zero tolerance for anything that's getting in their way. So I have to go into the organization and work respectfully uh, as a change agent to get these impediments and blockers and all these processes and practices that are slowing the team down resolved and corrected. So I'm partnering with management. I'm partnering with leadership. I'm out in the world. I'm, I'm talking to HR about hiring practices. I'm working with, with finance about, Hey, this annual budget cycle really kills us because we have these new opportunities, but we, you know, we have to spend six months to find the cash. You know, can we do some drip funding? Can we do some experimentation? Like I'm out there working so that there's nothing getting in the way of this team. So if you have someone who can do those three things, you have a servant leader, right? And if you think about, if you take these ideas further, you know, that servant leader is being measured by how everyone else around them is progressing and growing and thriving, right? And so it's not a, this is not a positional authority kind of thing. This is not a only VPs can be servant leaders. It's scrum master with no positional authority over the team. Like the scrum master cannot hire or fire. They cannot tell these people what to do, but what they can do is inspire them to new heights and they can just serve them uh, so that they can actually have a shot at reaching those heights. Does that help? Yeah. You know, when you say love your team, it's such an interesting idea, right? Because, you know, on the business side, you might have people that are a little bit more cutthroat, you know, in IT, you know, stereotypically maybe have some more introverted type of uh, types of people. Um, so I think yeah. that you, you describe how valuable that scrum master role can be. And, um, you know, it's, it's a combination of being both outgoing and selfless uh, in terms of how you describe it. I, oh, I totally agree. And, and even like this idea of a cutthroat business, like I, 
if we're building truly cross-functional teams, which are kind of the, the motor, the engine of Scrum, like cross-functional self-organizing teams drive progress, there's no more business versus IT. Business people and IT people and, you know, any, any activity needed to deliver product, well, they're going to be on our team. And so there's no more us, you know, us versus them, cutthroat versus introverted. It's, we are all deciding that the same people that sign HR and legal and marketing's paycheck also signs IT's paycheck. And so let's just work together and not against one another to deliver a product collaboratively in a self-organizing way as a cross-functional team. And so hopefully some of those behaviors disappear too, because it's hard to turn to your teammate and say, I'm against you when we're both heads down trying to deliver the same thing, right? In your book, Fixing Your Scrum, you caution teams against having multiple product owners per product or a part-time product owner. But let's say a team has a single dedicated product owner. Um, in that circumstance, what are some of the most common ways uh, in which a product owner tends to fall short in their responsibilities? Because, of course, if you have just one person as, like, the owner of value on a team, that's, you know, that's a lot of responsibility. And if they fail to meet that responsibility, there, you know, seems, seems like there could be a lot of repercussions to that. Yeah. So this was an interesting chapter to write because basically the product owner chapter in our book is basically about all the ways that these product owners have, can fall short. And, and it's really, um, it's really hard. This is a big role. And so first and foremost, it's a massive role that we're asking people to, to fulfill. Um, and so being aware of that, like a scrum master being aware when a product owner is, is underwater, I think is like the, the, one of the best remedies. But when these product owners fall short, sometimes they disappear. You know, sometimes we find that these product owners are really, they're fascinated by working with the, the customers, the stakeholders, and they spend a lot of time in the field, but not a lot of time collaborating with the, the scrum team or the dev team. They, they tend to think that, well, I've given my requirements, I've, I've shipped them over the wall, um, I should be all set. And, and it's, no, this is a collaborative working relationship between the product owner and the dev team. So when this product owner disappears, there's this, this product ownership, this product management vacuum. And so I'll, I'll let you guys guess. Guess who fills that vacuum? Who fills that void when the, when the product owner disappears? Scrum Master? Sometimes. But I mean, but also, yeah, so the scrum master might step in out of, you know, out of pity for the team and say, all right, sure. work on this, which would be totally out of line for the, the scrum master role. So scrum masters, if you're doing that, stop. <laughs> but it's typically the dev team that would step in sure. and say, well, we think this will work and this is what's on the card and this is what we talked about three months ago. So let's go ahead and, and fill that void because we cannot get uh, time with the product owner. And so we get the sprint review and guess what? The, the stakeholders see this product that the devs think is really cool, but is not aligned to their needs, and it's usually a disaster, right? And so we see that play out over and over and over. Um, we also see product ownership by committee. So the, the premise of your question was, you know, we, we recommend not having these groups of product owners. Well, guess what happens when you have five different product owners on a product, and they all have different areas of the product. They're all incentivized by the revenue on their product. You get gridlock. Or if you have product ownership by committee, well, now we have to manage the consensus and we get a watered down product and it takes, you know, 10 times the amount of time it should to get a decision made. And so we run into all these weird anti-patterns and a lot of it, what it comes down to is we're supposed to use Scrum to be competitive in the world. We're supposed to use Scrum to have this competitive advantage to be opportunistic in the market. But 
if we're waiting forever for decisions, whether it's an absolute product owner, product ownership by committee, multiple product owners, other people can outrun us. If, we if other companies have one empowered person who can make the call about the strategy, the tactics, or the budget around a product, and they can make it immediately, they can go faster than these larger organizations who require management through consensus, you know, multiple committee meetings, um, one person decides on budget, one person decides strategy, another person tactical. It's just slow. And if you're going to go slow like that, then Scrum is just overhead. Like if you're not using Scrum to be opportunistic in the market, please stop. Like it's, it's way too expensive to not take advantage of opportunities quickly. And so a single product owner who has full control over the product, who owns the, the value-making decisions, that's the preferred method because that is how we move quickly. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Um, in your chapter, Reclaiming the Daily Scrum, uh, you write about how daily Scrum meetings are, quote, uh, the subject of endless misunderstanding and also, quote, one of the most reliable indicators of the health of the Scrum team. Um, that's putting some high stakes on these meetings. Um, there are a lot of reasons why the daily Scrum can quickly become ineffective. Too many voices, not enough time. You know, you cover a lot of these in the book. Uh, what are some of the key objectives teams should aim for with the daily Scrum? Uh, what should they get out of it? Yeah, I, I think the daily scrum at its core is about figuring out how we as a development team are going to collaborate and work together during the next 24 hours to make progress towards our sprint goal. And that's it. Or that's really it. Um, so really, in essence, it's a 15-minute self-organization event for the dev team to figure, all right, so... I'm stuck on testing, so who's going to help me? And then I know that this other group over here, like these two devs, they're working on this feature. Why don't we swarm that in the afternoon? Like they're just like, they're, they're figuring out the blocking and tackling for the day. Like that's it. And so it's not a problem-solving session. It's not a status meeting. You know, it's not a Q&A with the product owner. It is just how are we going to work together? What? How are we going to pair up or mob or or test or whatever it is we need to do today to make sure we're making progress towards our sprint goal so that by the end of a sprint, we have the, the best possible chance of having a high quality, potentially releasable increment of product. And that's it. Uh, seems simple, right? You would think so, but uh, evidently, uh, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of organizations struggle with that. Well, it gets conflated with a few different things, right? So the daily scrum, people will call it the daily standup. And a stand-up is a status meeting. I mean, it comes from, from past projects, management practice, and not changing the terminology to daily scrum, I think, is dangerous. And so it turns into this daily status meeting or a product owner. And look, the product owner can go to a daily scrum. They just need to stay quiet. Like, if they want to listen in on what's happening with their product, that's great. Um, but please don't participate. But off, far too often, the product owner might show up to a daily stand-up. They might um, start asking questions. The dev team might start asking product-related things. And suddenly this 15-minute focused event that's basically focused on self-organization and collaboration sprawls out into this 45-minute jumbled mess of a meeting uh, that no one really wants to attend. And so I, I think focus here, like focus as a scrum value. So when we lose the scrum values, we lose focus. That's when daily scrums go bad. So let's focus on what we're trying to do here. Are we making progress on our sprint goal? Yes or no? Is our sprint backlog in good shape? Does it need to be? We're fine because we learned something. Yes or no? All right, let's break in 15 minutes. And then, look, if you need to go talk to the product owner because you learned something in the daily scrum, go do that, right? That's totally allowed. But for those 15 minutes, 
focus. I think the other thing teams need to do, and we recommend this in the book pretty heavily, draft the three questions. So the three questions like, you know, what did you do yesterday to make progress towards the sprint goal? What are you going to do today to make progress towards the sprint goal? And are there any impediments to achieving the sprint goal? Those have always been guidance. And I, and I, I'm glad that that's starting to get more explicit. I know during the last scrum guide release in 2017, Ken Schwaber was adamant that, look, these were always uh, guidance. They're not required. But I think if you follow those questions in a legalistic way, it's very easy for your daily scrum to kind of spiral into this daily stand-up status kind of thing. So don't use the questions. Walk the walk the boards. You know, if you if you're using Jira, project it on a wall. If you're using a physical board, walk the work and just talk about how do we move these things further. Is there anything that seems stuck? You know, use those kind of questions to figure out how we need to work together today to move to move the work uh, closer to done. To ask about another kind of meeting in the Scrum framework, uh, in your opinion, what should the ideal planning meeting for a sprint look like? Um, like similarly, uh, I have to imagine you'll you'll probably say focus is a fundamental uh, <laughs> component of those meetings. But you know, what yeah. are what are some things that must absolutely be discussed in a in a planning meeting? Yeah, I think the essentials. I, so so it's like in a sprint planning event. We are taking a look at the current product backlog that hopefully has all the latest updates from the last sprint review. You know, we're taking a look at all of this great information that's ordered by value by the product owner. We're all coming together as a scrum team. And we've probably invited some outside experts too. So I expect a self-organizing scrum team to realize that we need a security expert for this next sprint. So they invite that expert, right? So all these shared services, all these, bring them in. Let's have, let's have the conversation. And we're going to talk about what are the things that you know are important for this next sprint. What do the customers need most? What's highest? Of, what's the highest value things we could work on? And so that discussion is going to take place. And eventually, the the, the development team is going to start pulling product backlog items from the product backlog into a sprint backlog. And they're going to try to forecast out the work they could they think they could get to done, which is a, a high quality, potentially releasable product by the end of a sprint. And so as they start pulling work in. Hopefully they've already gone through refinement, right? So hopefully this work is small, discreet, um, well understood. You know, transparency does not mean visible; it means well understood. And so we've talked about this work before. Uh, we've gone through, you know, the we've done some diagramming, we've done some whiteboarding, we've talked to, you know, our architecture teams. We understand how we're going to do some of this, and we start pulling those items into a sprint backlog. And at some point, someone, hopefully the dev team, says, "Well, wait a minute, this is probably more than enough work. Let's fix." This is a good forecast. Then they start breaking down this work. So they first decide what they're going to do in a sprint, right? But then they're going to decide how best to get started. So with some of these items they've pulled into their sprint backlog, they're also going to create a plan for what, what the work could look like. So some tasking, some, some more whiteboarding, you know, maybe even like, you know, here's some acceptance criteria we're going to use to know that we're done. You know, all these things they're going to start actually talking through as well and get that captured. So really, the, the sprint planning session is, is about creating a sprint backlog that also includes a plan on how to get started for the work. Now, we're not planning the whole sprint, right, because we're going to learn. And it's basically through – it's like as Woody Zool always says, it is through doing the work that we learn about the work we need to do. And so we're not trying to plan the whole sprint, but we're going to plan the first two or three days so that we can figure out how to get started. And through doing the work, we're going to continually update our sprint backlog and our progress towards the sprinkle every day in that daily scrum, which we've talked about. 
And so by the end of sprint planning, we should have that sprint backlog in place, but we should also have a sprint goal, right? What is the goal of this sprint? And the sprint goal gets so horribly misunderstood. Like this is, it's tragic because first of all, sprint goals are required in Scrum and there's so many teams who don't use them. And this sprint goal really gives us this, this outcome-driven goal, right? The sprint goal should be a connection back to customer. The dev team should, through, through the sprint goal, the dev team should know how they're empowering people to do something new, how they're changing the world, how they're helping a customer solve a problem, right? We're connecting them to the why of the work, which keeps a dev team motivated. If you want to demotivate a dev team, don't let them see how they impact a customer, right? So do this, set this sprint goal. Um, once we understand the kind of work we're going to pull in, and, and once that sprint goal is in place, this outcome-driven, customer-facing thing, um, we're probably ready to get started with the sprint. And so, but and keep in mind, people get hung up on the sprint goal idea. I want to make sure it's clear. If we have five things in our sprint backlog, all five things do not have to relate to the sprint goal. You can have one or two things that are tied directly to the sprint goal and some other things that aren't, but you'd better make sure that those two things tied to the sprint goal get to done, or at least you're keeping an eye on them to make sure the sprint goal stays intact, okay? And so once we get to the end, we've got a sprint goal, we have a sprint backlog, the product owner and the dev team have collaborated on this, they're in agreement on the work that needs to be done. We get started on the sprint. Does that help? Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, Ryan, I'm, I'm sure we could get you talking about Scrum all day long. I have no doubt about that, but <laughs> I'll be respectful of your time, and that seems like a good spot to stop. Uh, congratulations on the book, and uh, thank you for talking with us. You know, guys, I really appreciate it. Pat and I put, um, you know, we, we both have been working or thinking about or, or trying to do Scrum in different ways for the past 20 years. Um, we've spent the last two years with uh, fixing your scrum, just putting in everything we've learned, everything we've tried, all of our failure stories, all of our mistakes, all of our wins, uh, in the hope that people read it and they start, you know, they get passionate and they start, you know, start talking about scrum like we have, right? As this this empowering framework, not something they have to do. And and so hopefully people check out the book. It's fixing your scrum: practical solutions for common scrum problems. It's available on. Amazon and paperback at that pragprog.com and digital. Um, and we just hope that people use this book to do better scrum. And if they do that, then, then hopefully, uh, then, then, then Todd and I will be happy and hopefully some, some dev teams will be happy as well. Absolutely. All right. Thank you again, Ryan. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Once again, Ripley's book is called Fixing Your Scrum, Practical Solutions to Common Scrum Problems. We also want to thank Ryan for bearing with us through some technical difficulties when we recorded this podcast. Also, subscribe to the Test and Release podcast on Apple Podcasts for more interviews with experts on application development and testing topics. You can also read expert advice, tutorials, and news stories at searchsoftwarequality.com. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at SoftwareTestTT.